0: Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with the Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. We are very uh, fortunate today to have Jesuit Father David Nazar, who is currently rector of the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome. We're going to do three sections with Father Nazar, his early life up to his time of his being provincial in Canada. And then we'll take a break and look at his work in the ukraine as superior of the jesuits in ukraine and then finally his very important work at the pontifical oriental institute in rome so father nazar uh welcome we're very happy to have you on Secretary story institute jesuit podcast and if you could open us with a prayer for our audience i'd be very grateful thank you very much bill i'll say a
1: prayer in ukrainian Thank you so much.
0: You know, we met, David, in philosophy, but, you know, I asked the Jesuits on these podcasts about their vocation story, and I don't even, I don't know if I know yours. So how did you get into the Society of Jesus? Well, it depends how much time you want to give to this but for
1: me uh i come from a large family in toronto an immigrant family the family originally is from ukraine though uh we're all born in in toronto and as a catholic family we went to both churches the ukrainian byzantine church and the latin rite church priests were always friends of the family it's a very very catholic environment my parents are very open simple people without higher education and so we grew up in that kind of environment and so I'm born in 1952, and I would say for the first dozen years of my life, every Catholic family thought they would have a son who would, uh, who would be a priest. It was, and I think every young Catholic boy thought of being a priest. Is this just Ukrainian
0: reason. Catholics, or was this all because Toronto has probably one of the highest concentrations of different ethnic groups in the world? That's right. The statistic is 49%
1: of the population of Toronto is born outside of Canada. Okay. So even going to school with kids of not only different ethnicities, but different religious backgrounds, even if they were all Catholic, they would be from different rites of the church and and different cultures and all. So we were quite familiar with that uh, growing up. Nonetheless, I I would say that the Latin church, because the Catholic school we went to was under the auspices of the the Latin rite church. So its presence was very strong in our lives, as, as well as the Ukrainian Catholic church. So, but when I got to high school, it was the time of the changes in the 60s. And all of a sudden, no one wanted to enter the priesthood. No one wanted to go to the church. And it was a big mark of, you know, my independence. I'm not going to church anymore. But at that time, I was playing organ in the Latin Rite Church. And I thought that this will help me stay with the church. It It was an affectionate thing for me, even though I went through those kind of revolutionary attitudes at the time. When I went to university, I just thought this priesthood thing was gone. You know, I wasn't too interested in it anymore. But by the end of first university, uh, a friend of mine and I realized that we didn't know exactly what we wanted to do uh, in the future. So we agreed. We had thought that after our degree,
0: we would go to Europe. Where did you, where did you enter university in Toronto? Uni- university of Toronto. Of uh, Toronto. Okay.
1: So one night we were up, we were finishing our last papers and we stayed up till six in the morning, just talking and uh, decided, why don't we go to Europe now? because we don't know what we want to do, give ourselves some time to think about it. So that's what we did. We worked for about five months to make money. We went to Europe for uh, six months and one of our high school teachers uh, was traveling to Rome towards the end of our, our trip and we agreed to meet in Rome. So we were together for an evening and I think we had a bite to eat or something. This was a very devout, very impressive man, older man. And he, said, he looked at me at one stage and he said, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? <laughs> and I had, never, I had never articulated it so clearly, but I said, well, I'm gonna enter the Jesuits. And he said, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, I went, uh, looked up Jesuits in the phone book in Toronto. I didn't know any. And the first Jesuit I'd met, it was an extraordinary meeting of a guy who could finish my sentences is the way I would put it. I would have a thought and he would take me further Than where I had been with that thought and spiritual things and all.
0: And you're 22
1: at this time. So I'm 20. I'm 20. I'm 20. 20, Not quite 21. So he said you should just go and uh, everything seemed fine. So uh, enter. So I went and entered, and I must say I didn't like it. Most of them seemed nuts to me. And uh, uh, (laughs) has that changed at all? (laughs) It has in a certain sense. But the church was going through its changes. I entered in 1973 and everything was going through the changes. So what was, was no longer, new things were there that made sense. But I would say a lot of people were still caught in the middle of, uh, are we living the past? Are we living a future that we can't see? And at a certain point I said to the novice master, listen, after three or four months here, I don't think this is making any sense, I should leave. And he said to me, I understand that, but I'm just gonna say to you, stay and do the 30 day retreat. And if once you do that 30-day retreat, you say you want to go, then go. But at least give yourself the benefit of this, which is the core of Jesuit spirituality. And it was a very wise, a simple thing that he said, but a wise thing that he said. Let me just tell you this anecdote. So I'm there in the retreat, and you do four hours of prayer a day, and uh, whoever prays four hours a day, you know, but here we are. And uh, where, where was the novitiate? The individual was in Guelph, which in Guelph, is about okay. six, 60 miles from Toronto. So it was a, a big retreat center. It was a 600 acre farm. Uh, so it's like lovely nature and everything. And very nice the retreat house and very good directors at the time. Well, I remember for the first four days, you know, sitting there for an hour of prayer and I'm scrunching my face and I'm wrinkling it, and trying to figure out how do I concentrate and, and do this prayer thing. I mean, I knew how to read a book, the Bible. or I knew how to say the rosary or whatever but to get into this meditation and contemplation was difficult. And it was on the fourth day uh, I was supposed to see my spiritual director and I, after a morning's prayer, which was again, just frustrating. I didn't feel anything during it. I just went out for a little, uh, a little walk and there on the retreat property was the st- statue of Mary and her hands are open in the gesture that wasn't giving and that wasn't receiving. It was, it was kind of right in the middle. And what came to mind was a girl that I was very close to, that I had dated for about two years before entering. And she was just a world of love. I was much more analytical. And she was just this world of affection and love. And I had this image of how I would corner her in an argument and uh, and think I was winning. And then she would hug me or she would kiss me. And it just, all my arguments fell apart. And I was just sort of <laughs> Well, that image came so strong for me while i was just by this statue then the image her image goes and there's jesus saying i'm the one who's hugging you like he didn't have to say anything but that was the clear point sure what, sure the love you were feeling from her was my love for you well that's when the retreat just exploded open and from then on it was just it was just very powerful and very moving and the contemplations and meditations and all so it was a moving moment but but one of the things that that was so important, I think, for me and for Jesuit spirituality, was God using our very history, showing you where He was in your history all along, and saying, "This is what it's about." If you have the eyes to see or the ears, ears to hear, yes. and uh, it just it, it exploded open a whole bunch of things for me. People who had been in my life, events that were in my life, I saw them all so uh, so differently. So.
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, because you were asked by this guy in Rome, you know, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to be a Jesuit. And you just kind of picked that out of thin air? Not exactly. Uh, it was
1: almost that the year towards the end of first year university, I had gone to see this the Jesuit who finished my sentences. And so I had a nice meeting with him, but I wasn't convinced about anything. OK. So I was carrying on this question without clarity, very murky for all the time that we were in Europe. And I never brought it to any clarity. But his question was what brought the clarity, and the the guy that I was traveling with, he was shocked. He said, where, where did this come from? And uh, again, that was one of those moments where, had he not asked the question, I'm not sure I, I would have answered. I'm not sure I've given an answer to myself so clearly. But he sure.
0: knew me well. He, we were close when he, when I was in high school at all. I entered in '73 as well, and there were more people leaving than there were entering in the. The world as we knew it was falling apart and it was a crazy time oh Uh, yeah all my friends even my
1: my parents friends who were very devout and church going said what's the matter with david (laughs) and and at the ukrainian parish where my parents went to and there were these people from the old country very devout and very church going and my mother told me the story one one old woman came up to her and said what's the matter with david he's not ugly and he's not stupid why did he (laughs) enter the priesthood
0: (laughs) That's what the guy I worked for. I worked for a guy who ran grocery stores, and I told him I was going to be entering the Jesuits. He said, Why are you throwing your life away? You could do anything. That's right. (laughs) You have all this talent. That's right. People don't get it. So uh, we meet up then in philosophy in Spokane, Washington and became uh, good friends. You had a conservatory degree in piano. Where did you get that? Because you came with that to Gonzaga.
1: Yeah, I had studied music since I was about 10 years old in Toronto. Uh, The Royal Conservatory of Toronto was well known in this this kind of field. So I had attained a, a teacher performer degree with them in piano and musical theory and composition and all of that. And then at the same time, I was in the high school orchestras playing the the clarinet and the bas- and the bassoon and because of that musical background i was playing organ in the latin Rite church and uh, even directing choirs uh, a couple of occasions so and music is very much in the eastern tradition so my parents were always you're almost born congenitally able to sing in harmony mm. because every, everything in these ch- in the eastern churches is sung in three or four part harmony
0: yeah. so, uh, yeah. So you you directed our choir for liturgies at the university during philosophy, but you were also the piano player of our rock group, the Bad Pigs, and that's where we have all of our memories from college years. So (laughs) college years as Jesuits, so that was fun. So you know, philosophy ended. You moved back to Canada and you get a degree in theology and anthropology, which I wasn't aware of till some years later. So tell us about that work and tell us about your seven years working with First Nations people in Canada. So when we were in theology, uh, again, there was still the time of not only changes,
1: but really trying to understand the changes that were going on at a social level, at a political level, first world, third world. Latin America had exploded open in terms of its importance for the world and questions of justice uh, and all of that. And along with that came an awareness of the importance of culture in the expression of faith. And it's a word that was really coined by Jesuit theologians, inculturation, Mm -hmm. meaning that the faith can never be expressed without a culture, without a language, which is the core part of a culture. And that came so natural to me because I grew up in two churches. It was the same faith doctrinally, but one, one church has no musical instruments. It's got icons, it's got smoke and gold, and people are singing all the time. And the other is the Latin church, which has a very different structure of its uh, liturgy, with the altar then uh, turned around in the sense of uh, sharing a sacred meal and everything. Uh, so for me, it was very easy to understand the idea of different cultures are going to express the same faith differently. And in the the Jesuits in Canada had a long tradition, going back to Jean de Brebeuf, of working with native people and it still was an important work that our province was doing so i was happy to volunteer for that and in preparation for that i was i did a doctorate in this inculturation so inculturation is basically putting together anthropology and theology anthropological insights uh, as the ground for expressing the the faith meaning theology and the idea was then to go and work with native people who again have their own culture they had received the Latin Rite Church, but there was a funny way in which there was a disconnect. So they have a deep spirituality, deeply devout, but they're wearing Roman vestments and the, the architecture of the church is something you would find in the downtown of any city or town or something sure, like that. Sure. And so that was really the challenge in those days, the 70s and 80s was, was to allow native expression of their culture in the church, which led to vocations uh, and all of that. So I went to work on uh, an island called Manitoulin Island, which is in the the famous Great Lakes. It's a large island, a population of 10,000 people. And and on that, there are about five uh, reserves, we call them in Canada, reservations in the United States. And I was on the largest of them, which is also the oldest of them, where the language was still retained. About 2,000 people lived uh, lived on the, the reserve. And the whole work then was, uh, aside with all of the social issues, all of the political and economic issues, was bringing native culture into the expression of the faith. And let me let me give you one story there, if I can. Okay. because we had all these uh, old vestments that were the old kind of classical Roman vestments. And it's one of the first expressions of a culture, because you're going to put on the vestments what makes sense uh, to your culture artistically, aesthetically. So I proposed to the native people who love to use deer hide and moose hide to make all sorts of ceremonial robes and decorations and all that so uh, I asked for people and we got 16 volunteers and I and I said here's all the deer hide and here's all the moose hide you people know what to do you people pray and know what the church is you put on these hides whatever you think is beautiful and appropriate for the church Well, and I I know they're very respectful. They're not going to put on, you know, jokes and limericks uh, uh, on on the hides. But what it did was it exploded open their imaginations to putting on all sorts of symbols on these hides. When they were done, our celebration was on Holy Thursday evening, which is traditionally the evening that's celebrating the priesthood, the creation of the priesthood. And I had all 16 people up at the front of the church holding the vestments that they had made. There was weeping in the church. And the weeping in the church was, it's almost like saying, finally, we, we see ourselves there. I mean, they're always coming to church, they were devout, but now this is the first time they're seeing their own self-expression there in the expression of the liturgy. I just remember the reactions of people were so deep and strong, so we knew we were on the right track with this enculturation. Approach.
0: Well, that's interesting, because another fact that I did not know about you until later is that you yourself are a good garment maker. A seamstress because you learned how to do that when you were growing up (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i I used to work in a
1: a menswear store tuxedo rentals so i knew how to do the measuring and actually the tailor
0: that's right that's right
1: (laughs) okay it's it's one of my hidden
0: talents yeah what what was your thesis for your doctoral study in anthropology and theology so the thesis was that one of the ideas in this in this talk
1: about enculturation is that the uh The church has to go and plant the seed of the church in different cultures and then let it grow. And one of my arguments was uh, that's not adequate because the expression of the faith is through the cross and resurrection. So the notion of planting the seed is is important. But the culture has to find its expression of the cross and the resurrection in the culture in order to appropriate the faith fully. And those kind of missionaries have to give life, give their lives uh, for this. Pour it out, and then hear how God is speaking in the culture. Like, for example, even if it's a non-Christian group that you go to, God is already present there in the culture. God is already present there among the people, whether they know it or not. And so part of it is just to give that light, to give it air, to, to draw it out mm-hmm. and let people themselves begin to express it. So even our pedagogy or our, even our preaching was a manner of trying to preach in a way that was eliciting from people themselves their own expression of the faith in which things like the spiritual exercises of the Saint Ignatius became very important to give people the authority to express the faith themselves and not just receive it from the priests, from a catechism or from a book with the conceptualities of Western culture sure. or of dominant white culture in North America, but say something and then hear how they would react to the same scripture passage or the same spiritual idea. For example, we'd have all these classes and spiritual exercises and the retreats we would do for people. And there's this one native man who said, we are talking about prayer and the most important prayers that people would find in their lives. And this one man who became a native deacon, in other words, a spiritual leader in the community said, for me, it's the sign of the cross. Who says that, you know, how many words is it, 15 words? Who sure. says that that's the most impre- important prayer? So we ask him, well, why would you say that? Because I take on the name of the Father. In other words, I become His. There's a great tradition in native cultures that you give a name to someone, sure. and you become part of the. So when I went there, they gave me a, a native name, and they would often call me by that native name. So when God's, when we say this thing in the name of the Father, God is giving us His name. He's calling us by name. I live in the name of the Father. I belong to the Father. I mean, it's as I say, it's only whatever it is, 15 words or less. But the depth of richness for native people, with just something as simple as the in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, it was, was rich and profound. If we just kept preaching and never listened to them, we would never know that. But how hmm. can you deny the importance and the insights? that they sure. have from that, that we just
0: sort of blow over to get to the next prayer. You know. Now, I've known other Jesuits who've worked with native peoples, and I had heard that individuals have to discover their name. They go out and kind of do a, a quest out in the woods and things like that. Is that the same thing, being given it's one? A, it's and... the same thing. It's the same thing. Okay. So you, you can do the, the, the vision
1: quest, the spiritual quest, and you go and wait for a name, but also an elder can give you a name. Okay. And that's what happened for me in the community. There was a ceremony, an elder gave me a name in on behalf of the community, so. What was your name? Well, the name is Nanoshkas. Which means? Well, I would tell my gross brothers that it means thrusting spear of the male warrior. (laughs) But in fact, it means hummingbird. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason that, well, again, this is relevant to the uh, inculturation. the reason that was given to the group that this this was the name for me is because the hummingbird searches for all the beautiful flowers in other words it brings out the beauty that's in nature so this was the sense of bringing out the beauty in people was the name that they had given to me which again comes from that enculturation aspect
0: And hummingbirds themselves are beautiful. Enough said. Enough said. (laughs) So you do that work for seven years, and then you were tapped to be the provincial of the English-speaking Jesuits in Canada. How old were you? I was uh, 41, I think, 41 or 42. Had you seen this appointment coming, or was it a complete shock? It
1: it was a complete shock. I mean, one could have imagined it sometime down the road. I mean, I have certain administrative ability, and uh, and you, you can... I could have imagined something like that, uh, I, not that I expected it, but no one in the province expected it at, at that time. But a native woman had come to me, <laughs> here's another native story, uh-huh. earlier on in the year, in my last year there, and she said to me, I had a dream, this will be your last year with us. And when native people have a dream and say something, you listen to it, even if there's no other evidence. Sure. And it was, a, it was about four months later, that my name was proposed to be provincial.
0: What were your thoughts at the time? My thoughts were... What we you in, in the 80s here, like mid-80s? That would have been 1996. 1996, okay.
1: Yeah, so my name arose in late 1995, and then the decision was made in early 1996, and that's when I became a provincial. It was a complete shock to me, and it was one of these shocks that they didn't have words. I was just sort of stunned and they even joke about this at the uh, the province consultation because they could see I was stunned, right? And which for them was a confirmation, you know, <laughs> I right. was so shocked. Right. By it. But even that night when I went to bed at night, there was this deep sense of confirmation that even though I didn't expect it, even though I didn't know what it would be about, that this was this was not a practical decision that the guys were making. This was this is what God was asking. It was very clear to me that it was a vocational thing. So I had to learn things very quickly because although I was a member of the province, there were parts of the province I didn't know and all the issues here and there. So there's a steep learning curve, but I must say, I enjoyed it. It was there was a a period of great of instruction in discernment, uh, in apostolic discernment for me, that was very how you how you make decisions, how you measure different values that are good values, all of them. How do you make a decision for the greater good? even though that might be difficult for some people, and to walk people through that without offending people. It was a very, very good learning experience.
0: Did experience. you apply some of the uh, techniques and learning methodologies and leadership skills that you had with Native peoples and bring it into your work as a provincial?
1: Yeah, in fact, if Native people had said that to me, and Jesuits said that to me. That was your preparation for being provincial. Because, again, in a Native reality, you, you have as well as all the beauty of the people, you have all of the social issues you can imagine. So you've got poverty, you've got alcoholic addiction, there's drugs, there's suicides. There's all sorts of difficult things. There's economic injustice in these communities. And you're figuring out, what is God asking of me? while there are all these problems here. What is is he asking of the whole community of native people? Because you can get lost in the morass of difficulties. You can lose your sight. And, and so that was a, a very rich challenge to say, all of these things are going on. I'm not going to solve them all. God isn't asking me to solve them all, but where is he asking me to focus here? And is that, that was really quite a fine instruction and in walking along with the people and people who could see it too. So the things that we were able to do in the native community were very significant and a number of them were first time things. And it was all because of that kind of discerned focus on what is God asking of us in this complicated situation? So, to to walk with that into being provincial was, uh, I would say, it was a direct gift, a direct grace, a nice. preparation for that.
0: I'm sure you made a thousand and one different decisions and discernments in that position. Looking back on it, what was the kind of the macro decision that you had to make in terms of like the biggest, like a directional change for the province that you look back on and say, this was accomplished and I'm grateful that I was able to do this. Maybe, maybe there were two things, one sort sort of negative and one very positive. The
1: negative one was that we had been a province of over 400 Jesuits. And when I was provincial, we were about 220 Jesuits and far too many Jesuits were overextended. Mm. And you could just see from simple management point of view, we had to let things go and even some very cherished things. So I, I brought this to the, the consultants, the, the, the governance community, and I said we have to close a whole bunch of things for financial reasons, for manpower reasons, but also to purify, to simplify what we're doing. What is our focus? We can't be doing everything. So we made a decision at my instigation to close 16 different works, 16 wow. different apostolates. A couple of them were quite large, many of them were small and, and a couple of medium. But to close 16 was a very dramatic decision that really was an earthquake for the province. Pastoral and
0: academic institutions?
1: Yeah. Okay. And so it was a hard decision. Everybody saw that it, it sort of had to be. So there is resistance of letting go. But no one, because there's also done with prayer and all that, no one could deny that it had to be done or something of this grandeur had to be done. And no sooner was it done than everybody felt peace in a sense that a guy had one solid job and not three. He was not overextended. Uh, There was more focus in every one of the Apostles. And now there was freedom to imagine, to recreate for a future, to imagine what our apostolic future would be. So that was was a very good experience because it's a tough decision, had to be made with all the appropriate conversations and discernment and it released positive energy. It wasn't just dining, but it really was rising to something new. The other thing that I would say had lasting effect was we changed a bit the manner of governing the province. So Canada, the English province went from Halifax to Vancouver. It was the biggest province in the world uh, at the time. And I would have to travel to va- from Vancouver to Halifax or St. John's Newfoundland is eight and a half hours nonstop on the jet. <laughs> So we always had to have many meetings and communications to retain the unity, felt unity in the province. And one of the things that I really focused on was to bring together all of the superiors, of all the communities together for regular meetings during the year. And we would make decisions that we would discuss, come together for two days at a time, discuss, pray and make decisions for the, the future of the province. The change was this, that generations before me, you sort of look for that, lonely tough individual leader who could make the decisions and go forward and everybody would just dump everything on him and his immediate counselors and what was clear to us was that we had to change that make the the decision making much more inclusive much more broadly felt and that way everybody takes responsibility for them so that i would say that was the lasting structural change we brought into the the province when i was there
0: that's great. Well, when we come back, let's switch to your 13 years in, in Ukraine and how that happened and what it was like for you. So thank you so much. We'll be right back. We're back with Father David Nazar of the Society of Jesus, longtime friend. And we just finished stories of his life in the society, education, working with First Nations people in Canada and his role as provincial of the English speaking Jesuits in Canada. So Father Nazar, you finish your provincial mm-hmm. post on the traditional day of St. Ignatius Day, July thirty first. The year was two thousand and two. Two thousand and two. And had you been tapped on the shoulder before leaving office for a new position after you would leave the provincial office?
1: Yes, it was in the year 2000. A request was given to uh, Father General, Peter Hans Kolvenbach at the time, from Russia. So what the society had done was created a general region for the Society of Jesus after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it really was the Soviet Union. It was the same geographical thing then I was waiting to see where vocations would come from and all. And to be honest with you, I have expected a call in 1991 or 92 after the collapse because they would be looking for people familiar with the Slavic countries and all. nothing came. But then vocations were arriving and the superior of this whole uh, region of the former Soviet Union had heard about me and it, we were at a conference in Spain. I was provincial at the time and I'll tell you the story He we were in, there were, I forget how many, 200, 250 provincials and assistants there and all this. And we we're at some kind of social. And this guy across the room points out at me and yells, we know where your mother is from. <laughs> <laughs> now, as, as cryptic as that sounds, I knew exactly what this meant. Because my mother was born in Ukraine and raised there. And this guy was the superior of this whole Russian region. So he asked for my permission to speak to Father Kolvenbach that I would be sent to Ukraine and Father Kolvenbach said to me you have to finish your term as provincial but there is a great need there and it would be good if you could go he didn't force me but he said if you could go it would be appreciated uh, appreciated and it made him in sense because now there are, there are vocations coming from Ukraine which is a, a deeply religious country and culture the vocations were coming in significant number to all of the religious orders and they needed someone who could handle the language, the Eastern, the Byzantine right, and the Latin right, and the whole governance structure and all that. So, as I always say on paper, I look beautiful for a job like that because I
0: had just, all the qualifications. Just like a hummingbird. Just like a hummingbird. Just like a hummingbird, yes. <laughs> so, this was a simmering on the back burner for the last two years of your six year provincial post then. That's had you, it. in that year that you took off to travel in Europe, did you go to Ukraine? your home country from your poor, your parents? Are no, from? but when I actually when I was in theology, I
1: went to it was still the Soviet Union in 1982. I went to take a, a month's uh, worth of study of the language. So I went to Kiev and to Lviv, where my mother is from. And I spent a month studying Ukrainian with about six other people uh, because because I was expecting ordination and to be able to be of service if needed in the Ukrainian church in Canada. So uh, yeah so this was my second time in
0: Ukraine. So you had you had grown up speaking Ukrainian, but you needed a refresher course in terms of kind of getting back fully into the uh, language. yeah for sure because we
1: uh, we were raised in Ukrainian until we started school. Okay. So in other words, my vocabulary was limited to the kitchen and to the bathroom. Okay, very good. So I, I couldn't have carried on the conversation about, you know, what's on the street what's happening in politics or anything like that. Okay. So I had the basics of the language, I had the liturgical language, but I did have to build up a lot of vocabulary and facility in the language.
0: Describe what Ukraine was like the year that you got there in term political, the post Soviet era. What what did you discover? What was the most kind of difficult or shocking or remarkable thing that you experienced when you got there? Two things. One was the poverty, and the other was
1: the psychospiritual health of the people. Imagine this: that we're flying into Lviv. Lviv was, it was a city of one million, and before this, you have to realize that these countries were not receiving many tourists. Refugees weren't running into these countries, mm-hmm. and so they were not built for receiving people or for hospitality. So the plane, as it's as it's coming down, <laughs> is flying over really small and not well kept fields all sorts of buildings and garages and sheds. I and mean, there was really the impression of a, a real poverty. The plane lands in the middle of a kind of a tarmac and coming to the plane is like a World War II vintage truck. And attached to the back of the truck is an open cattle car. That was our transit bus from wow. the plane to the terminal. And it just, it just, it said everything. It just it said <laughs> everything you needed to, to know. And then you would see that the streets with potholes, you could see that the uh, during the Soviet period, they had not improved anything. They didn't paint buildings, uh, Soviet monuments, yes. But in, in terms of just normal infrastructure, it wasn't there. And of course, nobody had a car. In fact, if you had a television, you'd be under suspicion by the police because how could you possibly afford a television? But the other thing to me was very striking, which was the psychological health of the people because I went there expecting a people angry, with repressed emotions, with fears, with hatreds of neighboring countries, especially of Russians. Also, there was a Polish-Ukrainian history. I expected tons and tons of this repressed feelings and uh, psychological issues and and acting them out in terms of whether sexually or with alcohol or with whatever or violence. And I found an extraordinarily healthy people. An extraordinarily healthy people. Now this is especially in, in Western Ukraine. And clearly one of the reasons for it was that the church was very active in the underground in all of this period. The church in a uh, country distinction with say Poland or Slovakia, where the church could still live, but always at war with the government. The Catholic church was forbidden in Ukraine, the, the bigger one, the Byzantine church. So there was no contest with the government. But it was underground because everyone was quite devout. So there were, there were seminary formations, there were ordinations, there were all sorts of things. Grandmothers taught their grandchildren how to pray, people prayed in their homes with regularity, everybody was baptized, everybody got first communion, and everybody had the sacraments when they were dying. And for the most part, the authorities knew but turned a blind eye to the thing. But I'm sure that this, this was the reason why the people retained a healthy sense of who they were, they knew that they were living under a repressive and unjust regime. And they knew equally well that this regime would die, that they didn't need to internalize its violence. One day it would be gone and they would rise again. And that, that, that spirit was very, very strong uh, among the people, such that there was no difficulty speaking with them about anything when I got there. I must say that that, that impressed me uh, so much. Also, their creativity. They were quite willing to take risks travel to other countries to work, to send money back home. The government was clouded by communist corruption. And so the people made the the greatest economic difference for the country by going to Portugal, by going to uh, different countries within the European Union to work for six months because they needed construction workers, to go to Italy and to Spain because elders needed people to care for them in their homes. And the money that they would make would be a pittance in those countries when I went to Ukraine, the average monthly salary was $100. Wow, that's amazing. So if they could send back the equivalent of $100 or $200 a month from wherever they were working, this was, this was a gold mine for the families. So the people then started buying cars, started buying goods, and they're the ones who really transformed the economy of Ukraine. And I say that because you could just see this positive energy in the people, that they did not collapse into depression, saying, oh, we can't change anything. That spirit was there and remained
0: strong among the people. And for your work as a Jesuit superior of the Jesuits of Ukraine, how many Jesuits were there in Ukraine when you got started and at the end of your time of 13 years? So I, I think the difference was when I got there, there were maybe about
1: eight. And when I left there, there were 16. So we, the Jesuits have a very high reputation and even a complicated reputation in Ukraine at the time. So I think a lot of young men would have been intimidated to enter the Jesuits. And I would say this worked to our favor because we got very good young men who had the courage of their convictions, who were willing to risk something and who had real talents. And so what we were able to do with a small number, for example, virtually all of the retreats in the country, 48-day retreats a year, the Jesuits were giving them. So, so the the the, and the the publications that we did and the books that we tra- spiritual works that we translated, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Ignatius biography, all of these we were translating regularly year by year into into Ukrainian. So we had we had a great effect. We opened a house for refugees because now refugees were trying to get to the European Union through Ukraine and all, and many of them would be would be caught. So we were even helping the government develop uh, refugee policies because of the Jesuit Refugee Service which we initiated there. So it was an exciting time. You're watching a country grow from a time of great repression, all this creative energy ready to explode as soon as the pressure was uh, was released, and then all sorts of things happening. And the church only became more and more important year by year for people. Very high attendance at church in the country in a very authentic way, uh, that, that God walks with me in my everyday life.
0: It's interesting. In, in times of kind of repression and persecution, faith is stronger. I did a portion of my Jesuit formation in Northern Ireland where the troubles were still very much present. And the people's faith was very strong. You know, it was, it's, it, you hang on to that during times of difficulty. It becomes much more important. Did you have, at the time, David, when you were in Ukraine, did you have dealings with the uh, the Russian Orthodox? And did you have to do any ecumenical work between uh, the Byzantine Rite Catholics and the Russian Orthodox?
1: Not the Russian Orthodox, the The Russian Orthodox in a very <clears throat> difficult situation in Ukraine. There were three Orthodox churches in Ukraine, two Ukrainian Orthodox churches and the Russian Orthodox Church. We had intimate collaborations with the two Ukrainian Orthodox churches. There was no issue at all. I was even a, a spiritual director for one of the Orthodox bishops. All of that worked very commonly, very smoothly. The Russian Orthodox Church was complicated because it was the only church juridically allowed to operate in the Soviet times, but it was very controlled. So if people wanted to go to church, whether they were Russian or they could speak Russian or not, that was the kind of the only church that was available to to go to. So many would go there and then it was the only, it might've been the only church in the village. So after the fall of the Soviet Union, people would be going there who weren't attached to the Russian Orthodox church, but it was the only church available. So as the national identity was growing, as the church was growing, the Russian Orthodox Church from Moscow, in coordination with Putin, the church was being used as a a weapon to a certain extent to repress the other churches. The Russian Orthodox Church still says today that the Ukrainian Orthodox Churches are illegitimate. The only legitimate Orthodox Church in Ukraine is the Russian Orthodox Church. Well, you can imagine that for people of a strong Ukrainian identity, to hear that, is is a bit offensive and difficult right i had to, for perhaps two good russian orthodox priest friends in in ukraine they were very good there were other orthodox priests who would be talking with me would be like talking with the satan i was born of satan because i was catholic and, and all that kind of stuff and that's a conflict within the russian orthodox church that doesn't yet resolved so the ecumenical work With the two Ukrainian Orthodox churches, which represent a larger percentage of the population than the Russian Orthodox Church, collaboration with them was very easy.
0: When I was at Georgetown, we had a visit with the Patriarch of Moscow, and we had a meeting with him in the offices of mission and ministry. And we were told to be very careful about what we said, because many of the Russian Orthodox priests traveling with them, we were told by the authorities in Washington that they were probably deeply infiltrated by the KGB, and the things that we would say would be carried back to authorities in Moscow. The Orthodox Church was deeply compromised during the Soviet era. Is it still that way? Does it still have a long way to go to recover? Is there pure faith in the Russian Orthodox Church? How do you see it from your post? You have to speak with great respect, in
1: one sense, about the Russian Orthodox Church, because it's in a very complicated situation. The Russian Orthodox Church cannot be seen to contradict Putin, cannot mm-hmm. be seen to contradict the government. And in that, it's already lost 30% or more of the mission of the church. Sure. If the mission of the church is to be prophetic and to speak to society about what are the social needs and everything, there are many things to criticize in Russia that are Russian state policies. So it's very difficult for the Russian Orthodox Church to speak openly. When, for example, the current patriarch, Kirill, met with Pope Francis in Cuba, first of all, he couldn't meet with the Pope in Europe and certainly not in Russia. It would not have been possible. When he met with him in Cuba, a large number of monks in monasteries in, and this was public in the press, said we can no longer pray for the patriarch because he has met with the Antichrist. Uh, there There was a theologian in Moscow at one of the Moscow universities who said, now we have a clear choice between the true faith and the patriarch. Wow. So, and and the patriarch knows this, and so it's difficult for him. Even if he wants to criticize the government, if he does, he's going to cause a split in his church. Sure. So, so that's why I say they have to have a, a kind of a respect for the for the church and the situation that it's in. But it's it's still not free. This is kind
0: of a sidebar, but a, your comment about split in the church remind me of the situation currently in Germany with the German hierarchy and their kind of own synodal way what do you think's going to happen there I, I don't
1: know and I won't, I won't pretend we we would hear stories on it but really my field now is with the is the Eastern Churches so.
0: Okay so before we leave this section on your work in Ukraine looking back what is the thing that you are most consoled by in the work that you did there well, one was to assist in the redemption of the
1: image of the jesuits now this might sound like a funny thing but ignatius has this expression that jesuits should go to work where cockle has been sown in other words where the reputation of the jesuits has been damaged the reputation of the church has been damaged and it might be difficult but that's where we should go and the reputation of the jesuits was complicated because it had been polish jesuits working in Ukraine okay. for several centuries, centuries, and they were of the Latin rite, and the retentions at times of saying that, well, you Byzantine people, you should all just be rebaptized and enter the Latin rite, and, uh, and there wasn't a clear understanding of what these, these rites were. At the same time, the Jesuits were highly respected for their spiritual depth and for their intellectual acumen. So so it had this kind of complicated image. So I go there with a Ukrainian name, a Ukrainian background, I'm Byzantine right born and and raised and all. And already that was a shock for people that a Jesuit could be Byzantine right. And then almost all of the guys that entered us were of the Byzantine right. Now this is very rich because we went and all of our work was spiritual work, was pastoral work, was university work. Uh, We were with people all the time. And slowly people saw the Jesuits are ours. The Jesuits aren't foreigners or from another church, the Jesuits belong there. So that, that has great apostolic importance because it just opened so many doors for us, even the work with uh, with refugees. The other thing I would say that was very important was the, the spiritual work. It was the work of the spiritual exercises. As I mentioned that when I got there, I was the only one or there were two of us who were giving the spiritual exercises. I would give about eight or 10 eight day retreats a year and there would be 20 people on each of these eight day retreats and I would be having individual conversations with all of them it was really too much but there was no other option and then slowly as the other Jesuits were coming out of formation they were doing this retreat work and then lay people and uh, there we had one one of the guys after me he had a an eight day Ignatian spiritual exercises for pregnant moms Wow, amazing. Great. And the place was full. And the place Great. was full. So the youth, the youth come out, uh, all sorts of categories of lay people, priests and sisters. I uh, gave the exercises to 15 bishops uh, at one stage. So there's a real spiritual thirst. And one real answer for that spiritual thirst was the spiritual exercises of Ignatius. So as Great. I say, now the Jesuits that are there, they give about 40 retreats a year. eight-day That's retreats. wonderful.
0: Great, great work Great work of Ignatius. There is nothing more powerful than the ex- exercises well delivered and well received. When we come back, we're going to end with your work in Rome at the Pontifical Oriental Institute. So we'll take a short break right now. Join Father David Nazar on Jesuit Podcast for this last section, looking at his current work in Rome, where in 2015, Father General Pope Francis named Father Nazar the rector. We would say president, of the United States of the Pontifical Oriental Institute. So, Father Nazar, congratulations! This is where we reconnected after many years. Tell us how this position came to you, and when you began in 2015, what what you faced, and a little bit about the history of the work of the Orientale.
1: Yeah, so the Oriental was created by directly by the popes, by Benedict the Fifteenth, but it was really Leo the Thirteenth at the end of the uh, 1800s. He saw the richness of all these Eastern churches at a Eucharistic Congress in Jerusalem, and all these guys come in with the big funny hats and the gold clothes and all this kind of stuff. And he realized yeah, they've that
0: got much much better outfits than the Roman guys do. <laughs> it,
1: it just, it's just so attractive. In fact, a lot of people enter the Eastern rites for the smoke and the gold. You know, it's just right. the uh, and he had this passionate concern that many of these Eastern rites are small, or even if they are mid-sized, they don't have the resources for a higher education. So he started this idea of opening up a university, a graduate school, basically, a university of higher studies for all of the Eastern rites of the church. So we're talking about an area that goes from Russia to Ethiopia and Africa and from southern Italy to India, and everything in between. The whole Middle East, Egypt, Turkey, and, and all those countries, Ukraine and uh, Bulgaria.
0: About how it's, many rights is that? So there's 24. 24 is not There's 24 in
1: the Catholic communion. Each of those Catholic ones would have a corresponding Orthodox one, and there are other Orthodox places. Okay. So this place was established. This is very interesting. It was established as an ecumenical institution when the word ecumenism was not used. Interesting. It it was established for Orthodox and Catholics to come and study their own resources and to make those resources available to the West. So that that was the inspiration. And it was doing foundational work for its first 100 years, finding the original manuscripts, studying the liturgies, the original languages. There are many liturgies that disappeared in the first few centuries. Other liturgies grew out of them. It was finding those manuscripts, analyzing them, studying them for their theology, uh, language, and all. Also, developing church disciplines like canon law. Uh, a lot of these churches operated by traditions, which included norms. But what, mm-hmm. uh, what was it? What was a tradition, and what was really normative? So this institution here put together the code of canon law for all of the Eastern churches. So there are major works that that, uh, were done here. The liturgy, a famous one of John Chrysostom, the main study of that liturgy was done here and so on and so forth. Many, many uh, manuscripts we have here available. So the first hundred years was really doing all this original research, making these riches available. In fact, I could say to you this, that the popularity of icons that you now see in the West you go to so many monasteries or chapels in the United States, and you see there's an icon. That became popular after Vatican II. One of the reasons was because our people had prepared documents for Vatican II, and Vatican II was the the first Vatican Council that really published a decree on the importance of the Eastern churches. And from then, even the whole notion of lay deacons in the church, when the West was thinking of doing that, they have to go to the East and say, What's a deacon? Uh, what are the documents? Because the deacons were retained in the Eastern churches. So it was the richness of the Eastern churches that were able to give guidance for the formation of the lay diaconate, so the Western church. So this, had gone, this work had gone on very well, academic work, Orthodox and Catholic, mostly Catholic, uh, but Orthodox and Catholic uh, studying here. And then in 2015, there were some crises of management here. There, there was a great revolt against the president of the university, not through his fault, but there had been growing uh, divisions among the faculty. And there hadn't been someone in the administration or in spiritual governments who could sort of bring the guys together and say, listen, we got some issues here. We have to work them through. It festered and festered and festered until it exploded. And the father general uh, intervened, asked for the dismissal the resignation of all the office holders in the orientali and then had to establish a new administration for the place. And of course everyone was in agreement because the place had just sort of blown up. Sure. Not the fact that it was still doing very good academic work, but at the human level, it was a difficult place to live in. That's right. So again, the Father General at that time, or his assistant, said to me, listen, uh, I was in Ukraine at the time, he said, listen, there is this problem there. Would you like to go there and be the director? And I think it surprised him when I said to him, well, sure, if you want, I'll go. I think he thought that he was going to have to argue with me and convince me. <laughs> to it. But I think the thing for me was that after 13 years in Ukraine, I would be happy to stay there for the rest of my life. But I knew that I had done the job that I was asked sure. to do. Sure. And it's always good when you can leave and, and leave it to the others to share that responsibility with them. So it seemed to me to come at an appropriate time. So then the, the suggestion is made to the Vatican and, uh, and the appointment by the Pope to, uh, to take the position.
0: This so is a humorous interesting, point, because uh, your appointment was announced on the National Jesuit News Network, and I said, I'm going to have to send David a congratulation email. So I dug up your email and just said, congratulations, David, on your appointment. We'll have to catch up. And I think within an hour, I got a seven-page cry-from-the-heart email about the disaster that you had inherited, and it was so awful I was just laughing out loud. <laughs> well, well, I said, I guess I, it's I not been, as glamorous as it sounds. <laughs> that's right. I might have been crying
1: from the heart, but I was also uh, quite excited by it because it, yeah. it's a nice kind of challenge because what I could see fairly quickly was basic principles of Jesuit governance and Jesuit community life were not operative here. So it's kind of clear the direction that things had to go. And I like that kind of thing where you have to, have to resolve conflicts by bringing people together. You have to open the conversation among people and they resolve the conflicts effectively. So it's creating processes and environment uh, for that to take place, which was a challenge. That was really the, the work of first year. But it's true, there were financial problems, there were administrative problems, there were personnel problems, building structure problems. Uh, you know. and uh, But once once guys started to meet, well, we came up with a, a new vision for the place and a 10-year plan and uh, you were very generous to come on board and to help with the fundraising possibilities and schemes and all that kind of stuff and helping us to develop a sort of public profile with the internet and our social media and all that so you, and you could just feel the the, uh, the sea change uh, here within the place. Right.
0: Yeah, it's been easy. I have to tell the listeners that I do have a connection because when I reached out to David, I gradually got involved in development work first through the Gregorian University Foundation and now as fundraiser for the Orientale specifically. COVID has really kind of put a big uh, damper on our trips and our plans. But you have been able to accomplish at the Orientale things that I think that the other two Jesuit institutions, the Biblicum, and the Greg have not been able to in terms of infrastructure updating, technology upgrades, classroom stuff, and a real kind of a forward vision for the 21st century. So why don't you talk about some of those uh, accomplishments?
1: Yeah, well, there, there are some things here that, I mean, in one sense, it's good to have a North American here in some of these positions, because uh, people who've been here for a long time, you know, and we all have this, there's a certain lethargy you say, well, this is the way it always was. This is the way it is now.
0: This is the way it always will be. That's right. It's always worked for us just fine, even though it's not working. (laughs) Well, exactly. That's a good way of putting it.
1: So, for example, the chairs in our main auditorium hall were bought in the 1920s. Now, it's a testament to their durability that they were still there. They're all wooden chairs, but that's kind of an image of, of how things were. So we were able to put together some, find some money together and, uh, again, generous uh, benefactors. And we had written this plan, all of us together here, of what we wanted to see over the next 10 years. So it wasn't as though I came up with a bunch of ideas and I have a bunch of rich friends. No, you knew that, that God was speaking through this because everybody said the same thing. These are the things we have to work on and move forward and my experience always is that when the voice of the people is somehow the voice of God. I mean, there, it, there can be sins and errors and all that kind of stuff. But when in prayer and open and honest conversation, people come together and we're looking to fulfill the mission of God here. And we come up with a very practical plan for 10 years. Well, if God is inspiring these people to do this, he's going to come up with the, the means to get this stuff sure. done. And I think that was the thing that surprised a lot of people. So, some of the things that that would surprise our non-Roman audience is that there was no air conditioning in the building. Now, you imagine sitting in the library through all the summer months and warm weather can start here even at the end of March. So, let's say from April until October, you, you would be sweating in the library on your manuscripts as you're doing your research and study. Just as the, as the
0: books are moldering on the shelves, too. <laughs> sure.
1: So we redid the, the main conference hall, which is part of the library. And we even, to a certain extent, were inspired by the aesthetics of the Georgetown Library. I think it's called Riggs Library. Something Riggs like Riggs Library, that. right. Yeah. And so we used a bit of that aesthetic in the place. Well, it just transformed everybody's imagination that you can actually change something in these, that you can actually make these places beautiful, that you can actually put in high-quality lighting, air conditioning, and comfortable seats. Can this be done?
0: The room had good bones, but it was really a dump. (laughs)
1: That's,
0: That's right, that's right
1: well again that just that just broke open a bunch of naive resistances that you say well we can't do this because it's never been done and when people saw it being done then all of the other things that we wanted to do on this 10-year plan became much more realizable so we were the first place to put in a high-end technology in all of the classrooms in the place so we basically used google but with major television screens with cameras and microphones wiring all of the classrooms together I think we are the only place, maybe by now there's been some change after COVID, but I think we're probably still the only place that has all of our classrooms wired for that. We've put and there in- are, there a- are
0: quite a few institutions in Rome that are managed or under the auspices of the church, and you probably are the most up-to-date technologically.
1: That would be fair. There's 22 of these uh, academic institutions, and we would be the most advanced technologically, that would be true. We even studied things like what, and these, these are great studies and interesting studies, but, but they're out there. What are the colors that help you study? What is the light intensity? How many lumens per square meter do you have to have for high quality study? How does the quality of air affect the quality of students? And the studies are very clear. And the studies in Europe say the very same thing as the studies in the United States and in Canada. So it was kind of a slam dunk to say, Oh, the other one is acoustics. What's the, the level of acoustics that impedes learning uh, and that you should have for high quality learning? So uh, some of these things are not expensive. Some of them are a bit more expensive. Sure. And we started bit by bit putting them in. And I, I use this story because I have never experienced this myself or heard anybody say this, but after we did these changes and we adjusted the acoustics and we adjusted the lighting and the colors of the classrooms, Students were saying, you know, my favorite classroom is that one. And the first, <laughs> oh, oh, my favorite classroom is that one. Well, I don't ever remember saying my favorite classroom anywhere, you know, that's in right. any of the universities I've been to. But you could sense that color, lighting, and acoustics made a really qualitative difference to your presence, right. uh, to your attention uh, in the classrooms. It affects you personally,
0: psychologically, intellectually. It's, it has a kind of a holistic impact on you. Exactly. And the, what the COVID situation inspired us to do
1: was to collaborate with a very generous company in New York, Delos. They were offering to help us in whatever ways that they could. One of the founders, he is in fact Palestinian, and he didn't know that there was a university that just studied Eastern things uh, here. So he was quite impressed by it. We had a good friendship that we developed. And then he said, Tell us how we can help you. So COVID comes along, and what we wanted to do was to guarantee the air quality in the building. So, we were able to put together money for air conditioning, and they provided uh, air purifiers for the building. So, now in all of the classrooms, we have air conditioning, not just air cooling, but air conditioning, air exchange, and filters that take up 99.97% of bacteria, virus, dust, odors uh, out of the classrooms. Pollens, right? Pollens, all that. And so, yeah, that's, and again, it's one of those things where. It's a small thing, but a significant enough thing that you're the you know that the air is clear. It gives you psychological security. I'm not going to get COVID in these classrooms. But then also you feel a strange yeah. I'm I, this is nice to be here. This is I'm not tired after an hour of a a class or a meeting as I would have in some of these rooms. And there's not no sense of the air getting stale and, and all the
0: it has had a real uh, positive effect on the. Nice. Yeah. And uh, the ecumenical work continues. You have uh, several fairly prominent Russian Orthodox graduates of the Orientale, don't you?
1: So, And uh, even more uh, or Armenian Greek. Orthodox and uh, Maronites from Lebanon. We have excellent now, a, a great increase in lay students. So, for example, we have a, a woman from uh, Baghdad. She was born in 1981 and has already lived through four wars. So the Iran-Iraq wow. war and the, the other wars that the United States is very well aware of. She is full of life and full of joy. And she's very intelligent. She, she can analyze these things to, to, to the end. And she is one who says, if the churches have to be alive because they are the ones who build up these countries. And when you look at the history of those countries, it's true. It wasn't political leaders, but it was the churches that made the schools, that made the political philosophies, That opened the hospitals did all the social services and she says it's going to be the churches that do this again it won't be the governments and it won't be infighting among with all due respect among the various uh, islamic groups many muslims support this work but it really a lot of it comes from christian inspiration Uh, a woman from egypt from cairo same sort of thing they're doing doctorates here Mm -hmm. in theology and looking at their ancient manuscripts in order to go back and bring the riches of their 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 cultures back to their own countries for the building up of their countries. Same thing with Romanians. same thing with Bulgarians from Turkey, from uh, Lebanon, Syria, uh, these are very, you, you feel yourself really at the vortex of crucial issues of our time, you know, and the voice of the church, it's the voice of a prophet, it's the voice of justice, it's the voice of the presence of God is crucial to make, making a difference in these yes. countries it will not be through the inspiration of the seven or eight international countries who are trading arms in those countries who are going to save them it's going to be the people themselves and on the basis of solid spiritual and human values so again you just feel yourself so co-involved with uh, at the root level of these countries of what's going on
0: yeah it has the that change has to happen from the bottom up that was again my experience in northern ireland Uh, where there had been troubles for so many years and I said to myself one day this is only going to end when the people say no more we will not allow this to go on so it really has to come up so we could go on for hours so let me just kind of make this kind of summary connection here you don't take credit for much of the things that you have done but you are like that hummingbird you go around and you've shown the native peoples in Canada what is possible in terms of how to manifest their culture through liturgy you brought the superiors of the english-speaking jesuits in canada together to make them co-responsible for changes that they knew probably needed to happen but couldn't see how to do it so you gently guided them did the same thing in ukraine by revealing yourself as ukrainian and as byzantine so that they could see themselves in a new way and you're doing that in rome too with the orientale where you certainly have provided leadership and you've uh, shown the people who are there, what is possible. So that takes a real vision, that takes a, a big heart and a firm hand. And so I think you are a remarkable leader and I, I am very grateful to call you a friend and I hope we can continue to do great work at the Orientale in the future. As long so, as you're with us, Bill, we'll do great work at the Orientale in the future. Well, it's good for the, for the success of that and for your work, could you end us with a prayer for ourselves and all of our listeners?
1: Native people would always say the most powerful prayer is the prayer of thanksgiving. It helps us to remember that God is there in all things. I want to thank you, loving God, our Father, through Jesus himself, for the many gifts and inspirations you give to us. We ask your mercy on all, all our sins against creation, against the salvation you offer to us, against the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. But we give you great thanks for the prayers that you answer and the prayers that you inspire in us, the energy you give to us to serve you and make the world as beautiful as you want it to be. We bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Thank you, Father David. Great being with you. And I hope to see you in Rome in not too distant future.
1: I can hardly wait. Take okay. care.
0: This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.